Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Working as a crew person on a fishing boat on the high seas or as part of a Coast Guard search and rescue helicopter crew rank as two of the most challenging and dangerous jobs in the world. When the fishing vessel LeConte began to sink in 80-mile-per-hour winds, the terrified crew had to jump into 60-foot seas in the middle of the night. Meanwhile, a Coast Guard chopper crew in Sitka deployed to search for the source of a distress call from a satellite beacon. The driving hail and fierce winds battered and bounced the helicopter around the sky, while its occupants searched the dark ocean for the source of the EPIRB signal. The pilot dropped down as close to the sea as he dared, and he knew that a rogue wave could bury the chopper at any moment. What the crew of the helicopter saw stunned them. Four men fought to stay afloat in massive seas. Rescuing them seemed like an impossible task. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Mark Morley had a bad feeling about heading out again as the skipper of the F.V. LeConte. He asked his fiancée to take out a large life insurance policy on him. And shortly before he left, he told her how he wanted to be buried. He told her the LeConte scared him when they got into big seas. And he said that as soon as he finished this trip, he would look for a shore job. The F.V. LeConte was a 77-foot-long wooden boat built in 1919. It was a salmon packer and meant to work in the relatively calm inside waters of southeast Alaska. It did not have reinforced windows, and the two large fish holes on the foredeck were not sealed. Should the deck become awash in high seas, water could flood the holes and eventually destabilize the boat. The LeConte also did not have a life raft, but each crewman had a survival suit. The owner of the LeConte did not want Mark Morley to take the boat into open waters. Still, Morley soon discovered that it was impossible to make a living by fishing the more peaceful inside waters of southeast Alaska. He told his crew he wanted to lay their long-line gear 
on the fairweather ground, a shoal and rock area with upwelling full of nutrients to sustain large populations of bottom fish. The only problem was that the fairweather ground sat 60 miles offshore. In January, storms could build quickly, and the crew faced a long run back to protected waters. Morley's crew also had doubts about the LeConte, and they were not thrilled with Morley's decision to fish so far offshore. Deck boss Gig Mork had worked on the LeConte with Morley for a while, but Morley had recently hired the rest of the crew. Mike DiCapua was an experienced fisherman. He had a reputation as a partier in port, but skippers appreciated his hard work and dependability when on a fishing boat. Bob Doyle had just retired at age 38 after spending 20 years in the U.S. Coast Guard. While in the Coast Guard, he had dreamed about working as a commercial fisherman. And although he was inexperienced, he promised to work hard. David Hanlon, 48, was a lifelong fisherman who came from a well-known and respected Clinkett family. In January 1998, on their first trip together out on the LeConte, the men fished the inside waters, but even in relatively gentle seas, the crew soon became aware of a problem on the boat. When water washed over the deck, it seeped through the cracks in the old planks and ran down into the engine room, causing the bilge alarm to sound. Each time the alarm went off, one of the crewmen had to run down to the engine room and fire up the small Honda gas pump. The system seemed to work because the unit pumped out the bilge in a few minutes. The crew couldn't help but wonder, though, about what would happen if a large storm caught them on the fairweather ground. Would the pump be able to keep up with the seas they might encounter there? The LeConte made good time to the fishing grounds, and the crew set out the longline as quickly as possible. A longline is a method commercial fishers use to catch bottom fish. The fishermen, and in this story they are all men, use long sections of ground line. They then attach a three-foot piece of line to the ground line with a baited hook on one end and a snap-on device on the other. They snap on one hook every 15 feet and wind the long line onto a reel. Then, as the boat moves along the chosen fishing area, the crew reels out the long line with the baited hooks, allowing the gear to sink to the bottom of the ocean. A skipper and his crew often lay out 10 miles or more of this line at a time, and they place buoy markers at intervals to help them find their gear when they pull it. As Morley and his crew laid out the longline gear on the fairweather ground, the wind increased in velocity, and the waves started to build. Morley ran 11 hours back to Graves Harbor near Cape Spencer. The bilge alarm constantly sounded while they plowed through the storm-tossed seas. Mike DiCapua finally volunteered for bilge duty, running the Honda pump to keep up with the water leaking into the engine room. A few days later, the storm abated, and although another storm was on the way, Morley decided to take advantage of this short window of good weather and head out to the fairweather ground to retrieve their gear. The trip was calm, and the fishing proved excellent. They loaded the boat with several thousand pounds of red snapper and other fish. 
instead of pulling the gear, Morley decided they would rebate it and lay it out again. By the time they worked through half of the gear, the weather began to change. The wind now blew at a steady 25 miles per hour, and the seas gradually built. Before long, they found themselves in 15-foot seas, but they continued to work their gear. The men worked through the night and the next morning. While preparing another stretch of long line, DeCapua looked up and noted a solid black line stretching across the sea where the ocean met the horizon. He pointed out the line to Gig Mork, and Mork agreed with him. The line meant a huge storm was approaching. DeCapua called up to Morley in the wheelhouse and told him they needed to get out of there and come back later to pick up the rest of the gear. Morley said no, We've got to get our gear before we leave. By the time they reached the last line of the gear, the seas were 25 feet high. DeCapua again pleaded with Morley to stop and run for shelter, but Morley said they would stick it out until they picked up the last of their gear. Conditions quickly worsened, and Morley finally decided they would have to return for their gear. He set a course for Cape Spencer, but the LeConte barely made headway while plowing through the huge waves. The seasoned fishermen on the boat had never seen such enormous waves, and here they were, on a leaky old boat not built for travel on the open ocean. The winds increased to 85 knots, or 93 miles per hour, and 45-foot seas. DeCapua and Doyle headed to the engine room to check the water level, and what they found terrified them. The engine room was completely flooded, and the freezing water reached nearly to the top of the stairs. Before long, the water would short out the LeConte's electrical circuits. Doyle awoke the rest of the crew and informed the skipper of the situation. The men began bailing the engine room with buckets while each took a turn to don his survival suit. It soon became apparent that they weren't making headway. The water was pouring into the boat faster than they could bail it. The possibility that the boat would roll, trapping them inside, became more real with every passing second. Morley assessed the situation. Seawater had submerged the pump, and it would not start. The boat was sinking fast. Morley gave the order to abandon ship. He issued a mayday call over the radio, but no one replied. Doyle told him he had the EPIRB, and Mark Morley activated it. An EPIRB is an emergency location device. It communicates a distress call and the unit's location to a satellite when activated, and the satellite in turn sends the signal to the Coast Guard. The men needed to keep the EPIRB with them so the Coast Guard could find them. The crew gathered on the foredeck, and since they had no life raft, Morley ordered the men to tie themselves together with tough nylon cord. They spaced themselves about nine feet apart, close enough to remain together, but far enough apart so they could move and escape the ties if necessary. As the boat began to founder and roll, the crew moved to the highest part of the deck. 
And then, when the Leconte rolled completely onto her side, the men did the unthinkable. They leaped together into the fierce storm and angry seas. As they jumped, their feet and rear ends impacted the ship's keel, and when they hit the water, they swam as fast as they could away from the sinking boat. When he hit the keel, Mark Morley tore a hole in the knee of his survival suit, and cold water immediately began leaking into the suit. A survival suit is a type of waterproof dry suit, and it is intended to protect the wearer from hypothermia. An inflatable tube keeps the wearer's head above the water and reduces the effort the person must expend to remain in a stable position. Any breach in the suit greatly reduces its effectiveness. Morley knew that a hole in his survival suit could mean the difference between life and death. At the operations center at the Coast Guard base in Sitka, Alaska, the SAR satellite picked up an emergency pulse from an EPIRB located 120 miles north and 60 miles offshore from Yakutat, Alaska, on the Fairweather Ground in the Gulf of Alaska. Pilots Lieutenant Dan Moulton and Lieutenant Bill Adikis launched immediately in an H-60 helicopter to search for the source of the signal. In addition to the two pilots, the rescue crew included flight mechanic Sean Witherspoon and rescue swimmer Rich Sansone. As the cold water continued to sap Mark Morley's energy, Dave Hanlon also began to struggle. I can't keep my head up, he told his companions. Somehow, no one had inflated Hanlon's neck collar before the crew abandoned ship. Gig Mork swam to Hanlon and pulled him across his chest to keep his head above the water. But each time a wave hit, the two men tumbled away from each other into its depths. Giant wave after wave pounded the men as they fought back to the surface to gulp air in the freezing night. Morley called out each man's name when they reassembled after a wave passed. Dave Hanlon became slower to respond, his replies weaker with each passing wave. Finally, he did not respond, and the men realized he was gone. They searched for him and continued to call his name, but they knew the ocean had claimed him. The Coast Guard crew realized they were heading out into a major storm, but nothing could prepare them for what they were about to face. When they reached Cape Edgecombe, the wind was blowing more than 66 miles per hour. The storm force winds tossed the helicopter around the sky like a toy and the conditions continued to worsen. The crew expected to find an EPIRB that someone had accidentally activated. They did not believe a boat would be so far from shore in this horrendous weather. When they finally located the EPIRB, the sight shocked them. They saw humans tied together bobbing in the enormous waves. The pilot dropped lower for a closer look, 
but the crew could barely make out the giant waves in the storm. Snow and sleet obscured their views, and the wind velocity continued to increase. 80 to 90 mile per hour winds made it nearly impossible for the pilot to hold the helicopter in a hover. And Moulton and Adikis had to remain vigilant about their altitude. The huge waves could suck the chopper down into the ocean if they dropped too low. As the flight mechanic, it was Sean Witherspoon's job to drop the rescue basket close to the men in the water so they could climb into it one by one and he could pull them up to the helicopter. Witherspoon soon learned that deploying the rescue basket was a nearly impossible job. Moulton attempted to hover above the stranded men while Witherspoon slid open the side door and pushed the rescue basket out the opening. The fierce wind whipped the basket and cable back toward the tail rotor blades. Witherspoon sat in the chopper door and endured the sleet, snow, and wind while he used all his strength to maneuver the rescue basket to the water. But once it hit, a rogue wave buried it nearly pulling the helicopter into the ocean. Morley and his crew had been in the water an hour when the Coast Guard H-60 arrived. They were elated to know the Coast Guard had received their EPIRB signal and felt confident the helicopter crew was about to rescue them. Then, as attempt after attempt to lower the rescue basket failed, their spirits plummeted. An ever-weakening Mark Morley told his crew that he was sorry. He admitted that they should have left the fair-weather ground sooner, but he let greed cloud his better judgment. Morley felt he was slipping away, but his crew told him to hang on. The pilots on the H-60 struggled to take the chopper lower and closer to the men in the water. As they jockeyed into position, Samson saw a huge rogue wave towering above the helicopter. Up! 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 Emergency! Up! He screamed at the pilots. A Dickies and Moulton saw the wave at about the same time, but it was sucking them down, and for several moments they did not think they would be able to escape it. Finally, they managed to rise only five feet above the wave as it passed. Samso noticed that Sean Witherspoon was getting exhausted. He was shaking uncontrollably and began to throw up. He slumped on the floor, and Samso thought he was going into shock. He placed him in a hypothermia bag and notified a Dickies of the situation. A Dickies knew they needed to head back to base and get medical care for Witherspoon. With deep regrets, they left the men fighting to stay alive in the ocean. The next helicopter was already en route and arrived on the scene 15 minutes after the first chopper departed. Morley, Doyle, DeCapua, and Mork were thrilled to see another helicopter, but their excitement and relief soon faded when they saw that the second helicopter had no more luck than the first at deploying the rescue basket. The pilots, flight mechanic, and rescue swimmer gave everything they had, but the storm won the battle. The crew became exhausted, and they ran low on fuel before they were able to rescue a single man. To their great disappointment, they were forced to return to Sitka. 
For the men in the water, this ongoing drama seemed cruel. Mark Morley began shaking violently as he passed through the stages of hypothermia. He told the others he was going to die, and then he lost consciousness. Bob Doyle held Morley across his chest when he could, but whenever a huge wave hit them, the two separated until they came to the surface. Doyle did not even know if Morley was still alive, but he held him and kept his face out of the water. A third Coast Guard crew prepared to leave Sitka. This time, the pilot would be Lieutenant Steve Torpy. Torpy's superior, Captain Ted Leferve, would sit in the co-pilot seat and command the crew. Fred Kalt was chosen as the flight mechanic. Lee Honnold would ride along as a flight mechanic backup, and Mike Fish rounded out the crew as the rescue swimmer. This crew had advice from the past two crews, and they put more weight in the rescue basket, placed Kim light sticks on the steel frame, and took as many flares as possible. Too few flares had hampered the first two crews from lighting up the scene. The men in the water were beginning to get confused and disoriented. They wouldn't last much longer. The waves had grown to 80 feet, and when one hit them, each man fought to hold his breath while he plunged beneath the angry ocean. Water began to find its way into even the sealed suits, and the freezing ocean sapped their energy. Once they followed the EPIRB signal to Morley, Doyle, to Capua, and Mork, Lieutenant Torpy announced that the first order of business was to drop the flares so he could get a reference point and see what was happening in the ocean below him. The flares would help him judge the size of the waves and keep him from crashing into a monster rogue wave. As the wind tossed the helicopter back and forth, Torpy fought to control it and wondered if he was in over his head. A blast of wind pushed the nose of the helicopter up, and a huge gust flung the helicopter backward as it lost altitude. Torpy fought to regain control of the aircraft, but it continued to plummet toward the raging ocean. Fish, Colt, and Honnold yelled, Altitude! Altitude! Up! 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 Torpy and Leferve worked together to apply full throttle and pull up on the collective as hard as possible. Finally, they stopped their descent, and the pilots regained control of the helicopter. When they took stock of their situation, they realized the intense blast of wind had rocketed them downwind 3,000 feet from the survivors. It would take them 20 minutes to fight their way back into position above the men. Captain Leferve had a moment of genius. The tried-and-true procedures were not working in this rescue attempt. They were fighting hurricane conditions in the North Pacific in the winter. Never before had the Coast Guard attempted a rescue in such horrific circumstances. Normal did not apply here. It was time to think outside the box. Leferve asked Torpy what he thought about dividing the controls. Torpy understood immediately. Yes, he said, you run the collective and keep us at a constant altitude, and I'll just fly the plane. Without having to worry about their altitude and the enormous waves beneath them, Torpy could concentrate on maneuvering the helicopter into position to allow Colt to drop the basket near the survivors. Their unorthodox plan worked. 
After hundreds of attempts at dropping the basket, the technique clicked for Kalt and Torpy, and Kalt dropped the basket just 30 feet from the survivors. Doyle was still holding Morley, and he saw his chance. He quickly unzipped his survival suit, retrieved the knife he wore on a string around his neck, and cut the line, binding Morley and him to the other men. Gigmork told Doyle to take Morley and swim for the basket, and his words revived Morley. Doyle wasn't even sure Morley was still alive, but he was now fully awake and excited about being rescued. Unfortunately, Morley could barely move, so Doyle dragged him through the water to the rescue basket. Doyle attempted to put Morley into the basket, but then he realized that Morley was stiff because his suit was full of water. There was no way Doyle could bend Morley's form into the basket. Instead, Doyle climbed into the basket, got on his knees, and tried to pull Morley into the basket. He got Morley's arms and elbows into the basket, but then the wave dropped out below them, and they hung in the air. Mark Morley was left dangling on the outside of the basket and fighting to hold on to the side of it. Not only did he have to support his weight in his weakened state, but he also had to hold up the weight of the seawater in his suit. Fred Colt could see nothing of the drama beneath him, but he could tell he had someone in the basket, and he began hoisting as fast as he could. Doyle told Morley to hang on as the basket swung furiously back and forth in the storm. Doyle crouched on his hands and knees and held on as tight as he could to Mark's arms. Morley pleaded with Doyle not to drop him, and Doyle promised he would hold on to him. He told Morley they were almost to the helicopter. They reached the helicopter, but continued to hang in the air, and Doyle could feel Morley slipping. The basket rose to the side door of the helicopter, but Colt could not pull the basket into the chopper. The basket wouldn't move. Colt hoisted the basket a little higher and tried again to pull it inside the helicopter, but the basket still seemed stuck somehow. Colt and Honnold pulled as hard as they could on the basket, but it did not move. Fish couldn't understand the problem, so he got on his hands and knees and peered down through the door. He saw the pale face of a man on the outside of the basket. The man inside the basket was fighting to keep the other man's arms pinned so he wouldn't slip. Each time Colt and Honnold pulled on the basket, they slammed the clinging man against the side of the helicopter. Morley looked up at Fish, and their eyes met. Fish yelled, Fred, there's someone hanging on the outside of the basket. When Fish looked down again, the man was gone, and the basket swung smoothly inside the helicopter. A guy just fell, Fish said. He knew the man fell over 100 feet, and he probably could not survive such a fall. Colt paused for a minute and informed Torpy of the situation, but he had no time to think about what had just happened. After pulling Doyle from the basket, he pushed it back out the door. They still had other survivors to rescue. After several attempts, Colt dropped the basket close to Mork and Decapua. 
and the two climbed inside the basket just as a wave broke over them. As the basket rose from the water, DiCapua fought to hold on, but he lost his grip and tumbled out of it and into the ocean. By now, the helicopter was running low on fuel. The pilots discussed the situation and decided they would stay and attempt to rescue DiCapua and Morley if he was still alive. Then they would fly to Yakutat instead of Sitka. Yakutat was much closer, and they would have a tailwind instead of a headwind. They would need far less fuel to get to Yakutat. Colt managed to drop the rescue basket 25 feet from DiCapua, and DiCapua crawled inside. He was in bad shape and the most hypothermic of the men. They found Morley floating in the water. He wasn't moving on his own, and the Coast Guardsmen had little doubt that he, the fall had killed him. They headed to Yakutat to get more advanced medical care for the men they had rescued. The following day, Morley's body was recovered. Although tragic, at least now his fiancée would have his body to bury. Doyle, Mork, and DeCapua recovered physically from their ordeal. Except for Dave Hanlon, the Coast Guard had recovered all the men from the Leconte. But what happened to Dave Hanlon? In the final evaluation, it was determined that the Coast Guard received the signal from the Leconte's EPIRB and launched one of the most epic search and rescue missions in its history. Three separate helicopter crews battled winds gusting to 120 knots, or 132 miles per hour, to rescue the crewmen. In the spring of 1998, a U.S. Coast Guard admiral presented Captain Laferve, Lieutenant Steve Torpy, Fred Colt, Mike Fish, and Lee Honnold with the Distinguished Flying Cross. This was one of the many awards this heroic helicopter crew received. The crews of the other two helicopters also received awards. After all, the knowledge of the first two crews allowed Torpy and his crew to realize they needed to adjust their approach to the situation. Seven months later, and 650 miles away, on Shuyak Island, a small island north of Kodiak Island, Two teenage boys were deer hunting when they spotted something red lying on a bear trail. They walked closer to the object and realized it was a neoprene mitten with teeth marks on the cuff. One of the boys picked it up. When he noticed it felt heavy, he sliced open the palm of the mitten with his hunting knife and found part of a human hand inside the glove. The boys continued down the trail a short distance and draped over a bear's bed, they discovered the top half of a survival suit. The boys called the troopers who recovered skin and bone fragments from the survival suit and sent this evidence, plus the fingers found in the mitten, to the Alaska State Crime Lab. The name Tomboy had been stenciled on the back of the survival suit and troopers soon learned the suit had been loaned to one of the fishermen on the Leconte. Eighteen days later, the medical examiner confirmed that 
fingerprints from the fingers found in the mittens matched those on file for David Hanlon. The counterclockwise current in the Gulf of Alaska had carried David Hanlon's body from the Fairweather Ground 650 miles to Shuyak Island, where it washed up on the beach and a Kodiak bear dragged away what was left of the body. David Hanlon's family buried his remains in the Tlingit village of Huna in a traditional ceremony. Finally, all the crew from the Leconte could be accounted for, and their families could at least know what had happened to them. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. If you haven't already done it, be sure to join the Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier Facebook group and chat about the podcast. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.